Malaysia. I was standing with some fellow Marines outside the chow hall, which is basically where you go eat. Suddenly I heard a whistling sound and then the loud thud, the sound of something impacting the ground hard, you know, 10 feet away from me. The sand and the rocks flew up into the air and instantly we ran for cover. As we took cover, waiting for more impacts to hit, we realized it had been a rocket round. I had seen these rounds, I had seen rounds like this impact from a distance before, yet there was always an explosion, and if Marines nearby, always casualties. Why not this one? When Explosive Ordnance Detail, or EOD, arrived to the scene and an hour later, they said when it was fired, it hadn't, it hadn't been armed. So when it impacted the ground, the, ro- the, the round just hit and it was buried. The kill radius for that rocket round is 15 meters circular, which I was definitely in. I was only four meters away. Marines told me, Perez, you're so lucky. And I remember just thinking, I was like, to me, that was God. To me, that was God. Now, I wasn't a Christian, but I believed in God. I believed in God, and I remember telling God, I remember telling him, you saved me for a reason. You must have a purpose for me. I want to be a man of God. Three years later, November 18, 2007, I made Jesus Lord of my life, and I got baptized. You know, and soon after couple months after i'm on the the campus of long beach city college and i'm preaching the word courageously because of scriptures like this turn to second corinthians uh, chapter 5 verse 14 it says for christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. This scripture blew me away. Christ's love compelled me. It compelled me to action. It compelled me to move. When I became convinced that he died for me, I was compelled to speak of his love and his faithfulness. When I became convinced that he died for me, I decided to live for him. You know, what did Jesus live for? That was the question. So why, I want to live for him, but what did he live for? And I read scriptures, and, and then I just remember realizing he's like, he, he came not to condemn the world, but to save the world. He wants all men to be saved. He wants everyone to be saved. He wants families to be reconciled. He wants people to be healed. He wants to give people a purpose. He wants to prosper them and not harm them. He wants to give them hope. You know, Jesus wants us to help rescue the world, to be the workers. This will require courage. This will require us to be fully convinced. 
my first point and only point is very simple. You must be convinced that Jesus rescues. Turn to Acts 4, verse 9 to 13. Acts 4, verse 9 to 13. And it says, If we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. You know, what boldness did they have here? They were compelled. These men were fully convinced you know, they, they, were, they had courage to speak what they were convinced of to those who had them in chains. They had so much confidence. They knew that Jesus had the power. That Jesus had the power to save. You know, when the Sadducees saw them sharing how convinced, how convinced they were uh, of Jesus and his plan for salvation, they said, Man, these men were courageous. They're courageous. That's amazing. You know, I want to ask you, how convinced are you of this today? How convinced are you today that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? You know, when we're convinced of this, it, it compels us. It compels us to share the good news. It moves us. You know, could others say that you're courageous by how you speak of Jesus? You know, could others really say how courageous you are by how you speak of Jesus? You know, your neighbors, your coworkers, your classmates, could they speak of how courageous you open up and share your life and your convictions and how Jesus has transformed you, how he's healed you, how he's rescued you, how he's prospered you. Now, I don't know about you, but this could be kind of hard for me sometimes. That courage doesn't always come that natural, right? Can you relate? It doesn't always come that natural. You know, I want to share a story we can have these great victories, but sometimes, you know, we, we kind of get that spiritual amnesia. You know, a story, in summer of 2009, I got activated to go and deploy to Iraq a second time. Now, this was the summer of 2009, and now I was a Christian. I went out there, and I was thinking, man, I don't know how I'm going to do it. I'm going to be by myself. It's going to be a little, I'm a, I'm a little afraid. What's God going to do? But then I remembered scriptures like this, that God rescues me, that Jesus rescued me, that I'm with him, that he gives me courage. And so I go out there, and, I'm, and once again, I'm, I'm not sure what's going to happen, but I go out there, 
and within two months, I find a brother in the faith in Iraq. He's in the same battalion. He's in the same camp with me. And so we start getting together. We start, you know, encouraging each other. We start praying. We start, uh, we start a Bible talk for a while. And it was just incredible what we were doing. You know, we had the faith. We were confident. And I remember one vivid story. You know, it's, it's nighttime. We're going on a mission. We're going to a, another base. And uh, this time, my, the brother ended up being my, my driver. He ended up being my driver. So we're, we're mounted up. We got the machine guns on top, and we're ready for action. We're, we're driving down the streets of Iraq. You know, we're, we're ready for battle. And I just remember we were inside the cab, and we were just singing kingdom songs. And we were laughing, and we were praying, and it was awesome. And we were just thinking to ourselves, man, we're in Iraq. Two disciples of Jesus, we're right here. It was so amazing. Yet, I could have these great spiritual stories, these great victories. And I could come back to campus a year later, and I could be a little timid to share my faith. I could be a little timid to just open up and share about the great things that Jesus has done in my life. You know, this happens a lot. And we've got to remember that Satan wants us to forget. He, he doesn't want us to remember. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy your faith. We've got to remember that. You know, so it gets tough, and it's difficult at times. But we have Jesus, and he rescues, and he gives us confidence. And so when I start feeling this way, what do I do? I go back to, once again, scriptures like this, and I remember I remember that he saved. He's the only one. He rescues me. You know, I, I read uh, from scriptures in Joshua. It says, you know, to, to do not be afraid. Be strong and courageous. And he always reminds you that he's with you. And in this verse, in verse, uh, I believe, verse 13 in Acts, you know, what did it say? What did these people see? They saw that these men, Peter and John, courageously, were, they were able to courageously be confident and convinced of their faith, and they remembered that he, they had been with Jesus. It says that they had been with Jesus. That's where we get our confidence, guys. You know, we, the faith is gained through hearing the message. We got to remember that. Jesus gives us the confidence. Jesus rescues. You know, we must be convinced of this. These men were ordinary. But they simply spoke what they were convinced of and what they had seen. Guys, let's be convinced that Jesus rescues and saves the lost. Amen. Here's Dave. job and uh, that was an awesome photo of him huh I was going to bring a photo of me and have it up there also I was in the Marine Corps and 
I'd have to have a photo of me sitting down with a logbook. Because I did logbooks. That was it. I didn't, I, I didn't know. So I didn't think it would be as inspiring. But uh, let me give you some statistics on people killed during the 9-11 attacks. 2,973 people were killed. That's in both towers, in all four planes, and in the Pentagon. The last survivor that was found was a Port Authority officer that was pulled from the rubble 27 hours after the attack. Steve asked Hector and myself, uh, to preach because Hector is in the military. He did uh, two tours in Iraq. I was also in the Marine Corps for four years, and I've been with the Los Angeles Police Department for uh, 21 years. And I truly believe that every single man and woman who has either served in the military, the fire department, or the police department has thought in detail about the possibility of one day being killed in the line of duty. And they've thought, I believe every single one of those people have thought about how their families and how their loved ones would be notified. Every now and again, as a police officer, I have to fill out a card, and on the back of the card, I have to put, who of my friends in the police department do I want to notify Monica if something were to happen to me? So, first I want everyone who serves as a police officer in the military, the fire department, to please stand up so we can all acknowledge them. <laughs> Ten years ago today, that fear of dying in the line of duty came true. It's a huge thing for a fellow brother police officer to get killed. Ten years ago today, 23 New York police officers were killed. The number of Port Authority officers killed, 37 lost their lives that day. The number of New York firefighters and paramedics that were killed, 343 lost their lives. That means 343 different occasions somebody went to those people's loved ones and told them that they died. The title of uh, the message is Courage to Rescue. I'm not necessarily the best at uh, verbalizing my feelings and my fears, but I sat down and I reflected on some of the things that I was afraid of going into the military and in, in the police department. I remember in the Marine Corps, uh, when I was, uh, you know, right out of high school, I remember the day that the recruiter came and picked me up. And I was, I was there with my, you know, my, my home, and it was early in the morning. My dad, my two sisters, and my brother, I remember them walking me to the front door and walking me to the recruiter at 3 a.m. And then I remember getting in the car and driving away from, from what had been my home for 19 years. 
And I remember being afraid. I remember thinking on the way downtown, I can't believe I'm in the military. I remember lying on my bed the very first night on base. After a full day of drill instructors yelling at me all day long like I've never been yelled at before. With my head shaved. See, back then, I mean, that meant something to me. Yeah, you know what I mean? Now it's like no big deal. Back then, I had more hair than, than Hector. I was like, I remember being told before, like, you'll never lose your hair. So, I mean, I had my head shaved. I remember laying in bed on base, and my head was cold. And I was like, I was so scared being away from home. And I remember laying there. I remember tears coming down my cheeks. And I remember thinking, I remember thinking, what have I done? I'm like, why did I come here and do this? And I was afraid. I remember for LAPD, I remember the first night we do ride-alongs out of the academy. I remember going to 77th Division in South Central L.A. I remember going on patrol the very first night, gun on my side, South Central, some of the most violent gangs in the world. And I remember, wow, I said, what if I could be that guy who got killed on his first night? And I, and I went in there thinking that. I remember working undercover and buying drugs undercover from gang members when I worked undercover narcotics. I remember, wow, what if I die on the street for a $10 rock that I try to buy from someone? Those were some of my fears, and I had a lot of those uh, in my career. And I began to think, like, you know, what made me overcome just things like that, even going into the department? Why did I want to go in there? And honestly, at 10 years old, I knew I wanted to be a police officer. I knew it at 10 years old. I remember seeing police officers drive through the streets where I grew up in Wilmington, and I remember seeing LAPD officers arresting and taking gang members to jail. I remember thinking, I want to do that because I, have, I just want to be able to help people. There was something that was invigorating about knowing that I could help people that I knew at that time, even that young, and it never changed, that that will never, there's no other job I could do that will ever fulfill me as far as a career other than being a policeman. And that really, that's why I even joined the military, because I knew it would prepare me. I've been working a homicide for eight years now, and uh, recently I was thinking about leaving the homicide unit to go work another field. And the reason being is because there's really so many other jobs that I could work that are way less stressful um, I wouldn't have to get calls in the middle of the night that a homicide occurred and get up and leave my family in the middle of the night. Um, there'd be no 18-hour days, and there'd, there'd be no uh, trials. These trials are grueling. The discovery, the preparation, I don't have to worry about any of that. And I, and I was thinking, like, you know, what is it that draws me to work in homicide? And really, it's the exact same thing that... That, that I felt getting on the police department. I felt, I really want to help people. I mean, for, someone, for someone's life to be taken, I mean, that's the most serious crime that could ever be done to a person, to take a loved one from your family. It devastates families, devastates, and families depend on us so much to solve, solve the crime. Like, who did this? to my son, to my daughter. 
And I'm like, I want to be able to help people. That's why I do this. That's what draws me to it. In 2000, there's a, there's a case that we, that we worked recently. It's a 2004 case that had been cold for a number of years. I remember taking the book off the shelf and looking in. It, we have notebook dividers for the murder books, and there's 26 different notebook dividers, and in section 11 is victim's information. I remember looking in this book, this old case, and there was no picture of the victim. There's only like a computer printout of his name. But he was an illegal from Mexico. He didn't have a photo ID. Family was probably poor. And there was no picture. There's really, he's faceless, and there's really nothing even to draw me to him. I always like going to that section because I want to see what the victim looked like. You know, I, want, I want to get a feeling for the case. And so I started doing, my partner and I started doing some background uh, on him. And we got some information from his wife. We looked at the first statement taken from his wife, Lorena. And it said in the statement that she couldn't even talk to the detectives. She was so distraught, they had to end the interview and had to come back a different day to get information because she just wept uncontrollably. And it was like, you get to feel like she loved Jose so much. Jose was the victim. She loved him so much. She happened to be pregnant with their first child. And she ended up having a miscarriage because of the stress put on her because Jose was killed. And she ended up moving back to Mexico to live with her family. She just had to get away. I spoke to one of Jose's ex-managers He said he was the most gifted welder that he had ever seen. He said that he was one of the hardest workers. He always got to work early and always was the last one to leave. The manager that I spoke to was like this grizzled old guy. To hear him talk, was he looked like something from a character from like Adam 12. But he was like, he's like, when I walked on the job, he was like, I'd have five or six guys running up to me. And telling me how good a worker they are. And how good a welder they are. He says, but let me tell you something. He looked at me in my, in my face. And he said, Jose was working. He was the guy that was doing the work. Where other people would talk about it. He was the one who did the work all day long. And I was like, wow. This was him, huh? He had, he had no criminal history. No drug history. Nothing whatsoever shady in his background. But some of the prior detectives that had worked on the case had seen that that he was suing an ex-employer because the ex-employer exploited illegal aliens. And he is part of a lawsuit. And he said, you know, that may have something to do with this. So my partner and I started unraveling Jose's background and became interested in the case, you know. And we started listening to interviews that were already done. And on one, one, one interview, one of the detectives spoke to a coworker, and the coworker said, you know what, um, there's an ex-manager who works with that owner who Jose was suing. You know, he was the trusted man of that owner that Jose was suing. He trusted him. And, you know, I don't know if the owner's involved, but if he was... He might know. He may be the weak link, you know, but he was never interviewed. So we went and interviewed him. My partner and I, we developed a plan 
and we said, we're going to interview him, and we, we, we set it up for him to go downtown. We're going to ask him if he did this, two, three-minute conversation, and we're going to take him up for a polygraph if he agrees to, which he did, and he failed miserably. We interrogated him for an hour, and then he finally admitted. He said, I, that owner, the Bulgarian guy, paid me to pay two other guys $100,000 to have Jose killed because he was suing them. But what stood out to me the most about that case more than anything else is the phone call to Jose's wife, Lorena. She had already moved back to Mexico, and I sat with my partner in the, in the civil attorney's office, and we had her on speakerphone, and we called her, and we told her, we said, we solved the crime, the person we arrested, four people who were responsible for killing your husband. And she sobbed. She cried. We couldn't even, it was dead silence, and all you could hear is her crying on the phone. Finally, when she got it, got, she was able to speak, she said, she said, thank you so much for not forgetting about Jose. She said, I thought he was forgotten about. And she said, thank you so much for helping me and helping, helping find who killed him. And then I remember I said, you know, that's exactly why I work homicide. It's so rewarding. It's so fulfilling. But when I was thinking about that and thinking about um, why I worked homicide, I started reflecting on my relationship with God. And I made a spiritual connection to my relationship with God. Because what's even more important than being a homicide detective What's even more important than serving in the military, in God's eyes, it's be, being a true Christian who has a heart to go out and save people from dying spiritually. I mean, that's more important than any career we could have, more important than anything you could do in your life. I have one simple point. And the point is, saving souls makes us whole. I thought about my passion and my job, and it made me think about, how about my passion for God and what God wants for my life? And the truth is, my marriage, honestly, is growing incredibly. One of my biggest testimonies is how God has changed my relationship with Monica. My parenting, I feel, is just its awesome. I, I love parenting my kids. I'm learning things from people in my lives. I remember the Landys have taught me so much when they discipled me. And just what the kingdom has given me to be a parent is, like, amazing. I could never be the parent that I am today if it wasn't for God and the people God put in my life. But if there's one area where I still, you know, sometimes it stops me from feeling complete or hinders me from feeling like totally complete. It's loving people and loving souls and thinking about trying to save people. I mean, that's the one area, and that's why you know, my point is saving souls makes us whole. Because I truly believe that. I started repenting of this about a year ago, and I started a neighborhood watch, and I made many friends within my neighborhood. 
and there's still a couple neighbors that we still talk to on a continual basis. But to be, a, to be totally honest with you, I mean, that's the area that has not grown as quickly as other areas in my life. I mean, that's the one area. I mean, other areas I feel like I've grown in a lot. But that's the one area I feel like I just don't have the mindset I need to have. I mean, a lot of times I look at cases and I think, or I think about leaving a homicide or I look at cases and I'm like, man, I want to work that case. Sometimes another team will get a case and I'll be like, man, I want to work that case. They can't do as good as I can with that case. And in no way, not in a prideful sense, but just in a passionate, man, I'm thinking about angles that I could work it. I want to put, do this and do that. And I think I could solve that case. And I got to kind of step back because it's someone else's case. But I don't think about that when it comes to people in my life and saving them. I mean, honestly, I just don't. You know, what about you? Think about parents. How many parents would, would, with their kids, entrust them for someone else to raise them, to be disciples? I, I mean, really, who would, I mean, if you, how would you like just to let your kids, let someone else be a better influence than you? But we do that with people in our lives, like, Every day, every single day, we can do that. You know, I don't think about developing a plan like I do with my homicide cases. Sometimes I just, I make, honestly, I make a lot of excuses. I don't even think sometimes that God puts me in certain positions and places for a specific reason. That's just not on my mind. If you turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 10, verse 14 and 15. Romans 10, verse 14 and 15. Earlier in Romans, Paul's heart is, is displayed like, it's just so moving when I was reading it. There's, there's all through the chapters before uh, chapter 10, it talks about how Paul longed for the lost. He felt obligated to preach. It says he was eager to preach. It says he was not. He said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. He says, God's wrath is coming. And he told, he told him, people will have no excuse. He said, God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. This is Paul said, as my gospel declares. That's how he was so tied in with, with God. He says, as my gospel declares, that people are going to be judged. And then he just urged people. He urged people. I believe this is God's message to us today. God is urging us and wants to enlist our help for the lost. And as Paul wrote here, this message is for us today from God. And in Romans chapter 10, Verse 14 and 15, it says, How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring Good news. Paul anguished over the lost. He did. If you read through Romans, Paul anguished over the lost. He pleaded with Christians, we have got to save people. 
And I know I, I just don't feel that way. Do you guys feel that way all the time? I mean, honestly, it'll be 100% honest. Do we really feel that way? I know for me, I cut corners, and I make so many excuses. I literally have 100 excuses that, that seem to be floating around in my head that I can just pull out and use at the right moment. I mean, just to be honest, I really do. And I think, honestly, even as a church, that we have to love people more. We just have to love people more and not make excuses. Just the mindset that God wants me to share my faith. Now, God wants me to love and save people. I want to lift up, you saw her up here earlier, is Elena Munoz. We went to Shaver Lake um, during the summer, as we always do for a family trip. Monica and I are cruising around in the jet ski in the water, and Elena and Armando are cruising around, and they came across a woman in the middle of the lake, and her jet ski had stalled, and she had two kids on it. So, I mean, she needed help. So we, we stopped there to help her, and one of her kids was very scared and just wanted to go in. So we're like, you know, I'm thinking, okay, we'll help him. And we got him, and he jumped on Monica's, on our jet ski that I was with Monica, and we gave him a ride in, and we got a rope, and we're, I jumped in the water, and I'm tying their jet ski to our jet ski, and we're going to tow him in. And she couldn't stop thanking us. Thank you so much. I'm so sorry. Thank you so much. And, um, and she was so grateful, and they, they ended up getting it started so they could ride in. But she was so grateful and I was thinking, man, we really helped her and did a good job here. You know, I, you know, you feel good about yourself. And one thing Elena said, she said, I think, she goes, I think God put her there for us to reach out with her. And that, honestly, it wasn't even on my mind. I was content that I came across her, we helped her, and go on our way. And she had invited us over, you know, to their campsite, and we went later on you know, to try to find them, and we had to go all the way around to the other side of the lake, and we were looking, and we, unfortunately, we couldn't find them. But is that our mindset? Like, God has placed me here, and when people are involved in our lives or come across us, that we really believe God has put this person in my life, and if I don't share with them, who's going to share with them? Who's going to do a better job than I can? I have, I have the Holy Spirit. Who can do what I can do with this person? And nobody should feel accused. No one, God doesn't want us to feel accused. He wants us as a church, though, I mean, to be 100% honest. I mean, he wants us to be honest because God knows anyway. In reality, God knows our heart. He perceives our heart. Whether we even admit it or not, he knows if this is our heart. And we know. And we don't feel whole unless we're sharing and we're loving people that way. We know how it feels when we walk away from people that we know we should have said something to them. We know that feeling inside when we walk away. We feel empty inside. We can feel a little guilty. We are exactly like the priest and the Levite in the Good Samaritan story. We have a shell around us that looks good, but on the inside, we're not thinking that way. We're not thinking really to love and help people the way that we need, that God wants us to love and help people. Saving souls makes us whole. It's exciting, and honestly, it's exciting to share, isn't it? Isn't it exciting to share and talk about God? I know since I started, you know, trying to repent and do better in this area over a month ago, I remember having uh, dinner, uh, Monica and I had dinner with Gary and with uh, Karen, and we went out, and I was thinking, I'm going to share with the waiter before he does. 
I remember thinking, I'm going to share. You know, come on, Marys get a bad rap for sharing her faith. That's the truth, right? I remember with Hector, I met with Hector uh, at Starbucks to talk about this lesson. And I'm like, I'm going to share with this Starbucks guy before he has a chance to share with this guy. You know? Well, I'm a mature disciple. I don't need to share my faith. Right? I'm like, I've got to share with this guy. I've got to have a heart for the lost. And, and let's be honest, right? Singles in campus, they get a bad rap. They do. Come on, sometimes in church, what do we say about them? They're messy. They're not financially responsible. Over and over and over. But honestly, hey, spiritually, I think sometimes they feel a lot more whole than married. Why? Because they have an incredible heart for the lost. Today I went to the coffee bean. Where's Max? Where's Max? Today I went... To Today I went to the coffee bean, and I got a cup of coffee, and Max served me. And, uh, and Max said, hey, we go to church together. I'm like, yeah, I don't know. And then, and then the girl behind Max said, yeah, and I'm going with him next week. I was like, that's awesome. She's like, I can't make it today because I have a meeting here, and they won't let me go. But Max invited me, and I'm going next week. I was like so fired up. I was encouraged. We had a D-time with Hector and Valerie, and I appreciate Valerie Oliveris' honesty. We had a D-time yesterday because she expressed the way I feel so much. She said she, she, she started to tear up, and she got in tears, and she said, you know what, I miss the teen ministry because I feel like since being married and having a, a child, I feel like really I just don't love God the way I did when I was in teen ministry. And I know I feel like I, I feel that way too sometimes. I think a lot of marrieds could feel that way. Come on, let's be totally 100% honest. I mean, we have kids, we have more responsibility, but in reality, a lot of times we don't have the love in our hearts for the lost the way that we should. I mean, honestly, we have, that's the way we have to start thinking because that's the way that God wants us to think. We make excuses about why we don't share. And as a homicide detective, I'll tell you right now, one of the most frustrating things for me is witnesses who refuse to talk. One of the most frustrating things as a homicide... Come on, where's campus? What? Snitches get... That's right. Snitches get stitches. Witnesses, do, they don't want to talk. They don't want to give information. They don't want to give any information, right, on our cases. I've heard every single excuse out there. I'm afraid of retaliation. I don't want to get involved. I mean, I heard them all, and some of them are very, very legitimate. But in truth, it's extremely frustrating because a lot of times they know who the murderer is, but they don't want to say, how about God? How does God feel about us not talking? Come on, how does God feel about us not talking? The number one reason people don't talk is what? Conflict. Just like these witnesses, they're afraid of conflict, right? And we could be the exact same way. We're like a witness who refuses to say who the murderer is. Is that right? People are dying spiritually around us every single day, and we know who the murderer is. We know because we study the Bible, and we know who the murderer is. We know it, and we look at people, and we know it, and we don't say something that we, we know we should say to them about God. Second Corinthians 5.10 says, Every 
single person will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Every single person that we come across will sit in the judgment seat before Christ. That's a fact. That's a fact. And we have the answers for them. We have the answers for them. And a lot of times we don't talk. I have a case right now. Right now I have a case where a victim's wife, brother, and best friend refuse to testify. Refuse to testify so the case cannot go forward. That's a fact. And it's not uncommon. We deal with this in every single homicide case. This is family members. And we could say, wow. But what about our family members? Do we have a plan for our own family members? When is the last time that we urged them to study the Bible? Or did we give up like five years ago? Are they cold cases? One of my favorite quotes is, we will have to repent, not merely for the vitriolic words and actions of bad people, but for the appalling silence of the good people. Silence is appalling to God. It's appalling to God. Saving souls is what makes us whole. We have the answers to save people. In Romans 10, verse 8, it says that the word is near you. It says it's in your mouth. It says it's in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming. It says it's inside of you. God says it is in me and it's inside of you and it's there all day long. We just have to use it and say it. God is telling us that it's not something that we can't do. It's not something that we're not capable of doing, but it's going to take courage. It's going to take courage to do it. And that's what we have to remember. It is courage we look at the military and we look at police officers, yeah, that's courageous, but God says it's courageous for us to reach out to people. It's courageous to share and to love people and try to save them. But a lot of times, people, other people don't see this courage. I have a coworker who recently told me that I hide behind church. That's what he told me. He goes, man, he goes, you hide behind church because I don't go to certain places. I said, let me tell you something. I said, it takes more courage to love God wholeheartedly than anything else you can do. I said, using profanity, cheating on your wife, looking at porn on the Internet is easy. Anybody could do it. It's easy. Anybody could do that. But turn from it. Because the God takes courage. So you tell me it's going to, you know, you're hiding behind church. We need, to, we need to have a reality check. It's not hiding behind church. Jesus was the most courageous man to ever walk 
the face of the earth, and we shouldn't let anybody else tell us otherwise. Saving souls is what's going to make us whole. In closing, if you could turn to Proverbs 24. Earlier we acknowledged the military and the police and, 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 and firemen. And I just want to tell you again before I read this scripture. Is that God wants to acknowledge you. God, God wants to acknowledge and reward true Christians whose heart is to rescue people, whose heart is to rescue people who would otherwise die spiritually. And God wants to honor you. And you have to realize that the day will come where you will all stand before God and God will reward you for what you did. Proverbs 24 Verse 11, this is God's word to every single one of us. Rescue those being led away to death. Hold back those staggering toward slaughter. If you say, but we knew nothing about this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who guards your life know it? Will he not repay each person according to what he has done? Saving souls makes us whole. Thank you.